Fully Independent Community Radio. There it is. What a good time to come in. Yeah. I like the way you did that. That was very decisive. Um, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I was just looking at uh, Matt Stedman decisively hitting those microphone things, and we just came on, and oh, here we are. Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we going? We certainly are. Here welcome we to the Sunday. We're in the afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. We made it through the morning. It's all all right. Sun's over the yard arm. If you've got a drink, it might be a good time to get it into the into the glass. Well, that's yes. when it's okay. Well, this is true. 11s is sort of frowned on. Although I think technically the sun isn't over the yard arm because of daylight saving. But we're not... Don't, no no don't. judgment. No judgment. Yeah, you know. Mm. It's just a time thing. It's a demarcation thing. Yes. Uh, we've arrived. We're delighted to be here to have a chat to you about food. Yes. Uh, we're going to... We're, we're looking into the, the cranium areas today. Yes, we are. So, are we, and speaking of which, we should say thanks <laughs> to the scientists for Einstein and GoGo yet again. Thank you, guys. As they leave the building. In some ways, we're continuing that theme because we're getting down and dirty with some academics. We are. What we're doing is um, it's it's going to be a tale of two academics. Yes. Uh, we have a little bit of food thrown in the middle. Yes, which is a good way to do it. I like that. Yeah. I like that. <clears throat> yes, I do. Um, the first uh, academic we have... Sorry, I just had to cough then. Um, the first academic that we have is uh, David Santo um, from uh, from the Northern Hemisphere area around uh, uh, originally from uh, Montreal. We'll have to find mm-hmm. out where exactly mm-hmm. he is uh, he's doing his learning. Uh, his phone comes up as uh, Detroit, Michigan. Oh, so really? anyway, we'll yeah, right. we'll find out about that. Um, from the Eco Gastronomy Project at the University of Gastronomic. Gastronomic, I always get that wrong. Um, sciences, good thing he wasn't in the studio when I said that. Just slap you down. <laughs> you look at me, Balfour, going, dude, dude, get the syllables correctly, uh, uh, done. And he's going to be, um, part of the Melbourne Gastronomic Symposium that's going to be here, uh, now, I think in this 21st year. Mm-hmm. And, um, the subject of this thing is, uh, utopia. Utopia? Yeah. Topical, <laughs> perhaps, you could argue. But we shan't go down that rabbit hole. Don't do it, Don't Matt. Don't do it. It's happened. It's our reality. Stop it, Cam. Just a second. <laughs> Ow. Yeah, we're still getting to grips with it, mm. aren't we, folks? And um, <clears throat> we'll be having uh, a, a bit of a surprise cook-up for you, but um, hopefully the good thing about this is that you'll be able to take um, some knowledge back with you. In a way, we sort of think about it as going to university and that you do your theoreticals and then you have your pracs. You get your prac. So we have a prac in the middle. Yep. Um, Kitchen 101. Yeah, we can. Yep. And then we are going to be going to uh, an academic, a professor from Deakin University here in uh, beautiful downtown Melbourne. Well, actually, it's on the outskirts, isn't it? Uh, Professor Russell Keats. Mm -hmm. And um, he has been looking at – he comes from a chefy background, actually. No, really? um, Before he sort of uh, jumped the fence. Right. And uh, climbed into the ivory tower. That's not fair, is it? I guess you, you probably wouldn't find too many chef academic or academic chefs. Like that, pr- that have made that switch. Fields, yeah. yeah, yeah. So mm. he's kind of interesting in that he has a very practical sort of um, aspect on that. Mm-hmm. And he's looking at the link between taste mm-hmm. and diet. So uh, we might have a chat to him or might will. have. <laughs> hey, we're going to. It's happening. We're going to. Lock we're, it in. We've nailed our colours for the master. Yes. And um, it would be interesting to talk to him about his work that he's doing, what sort of inspired that and and how he, he did jump that fence, how he did sort of get from um, working in kitchens to being at Deakin. So, yeah, that's uh, that. 
Just the hours are probably better. Intend to do. Now, I've been looking through the Wayback Machine here. Yes. And uh, I found out that on this day Mm. in 1758, now check this out for Mm. a name. You know, pretentious moi. Uh, You ready? Here we go. Go. Hello, my name is Alexandre Balthazar Laurent Grimoire de la Renier. <laughs> How do you do? Well, hey, this dude yeah. uh, was born in, uh, was, uh, hang on a minute, was born, brackets, died. He died on December 25th, oh, Christmas Day, 1837. Sucks to be him, huh? <laughs> uh, no presents for him no. under the tree. Uh, he was a French writer and gastronome, and he was notorious for his extravagant behavior, sharp wit, and dark humor. Apparently, mm. he was one of the very first restaurant critics. And really? by all accounts, I seem to remember reading about this guy. He would um, pretty much use his position to get free food, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so this is like uh, what the bloggers are doing nowadays. Maybe. So, so this is like, this is he's he's preempted the bloggers by 150 odd years. Yes, unfortunately, there weren't any camera phones, so he couldn't take photos <laughs> yes. of his food well, before he's at it. No Snapchat. In ma- those ma- days. Maybe he had a, like uh, a, a, a sketching artist to come and maybe do it. <laughs> hey, what does that look like, uh, Alexandre? Um, 1820 in a yes. in a year where uh, the whales won. Uh, a whaling ship, the Essex, was rammed twice by a sperm whale and eventually sank. Not really. <laughs> Cop that! <laughs> Why do I, I... I just quite enjoy that story. Well, it's a bit of schadenfreude, the isn't it? The whales fight back. <clears throat> and um, there was something else that was kind of interesting, uh, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. And this, yes. uh, this was um, the birth of environmentalism. It had mm. to come from somewhere. And some say that it came from a book called Silent Spring. Uh, which was penned in the 60s. Subsequent to that, in mm. 1966, DDT was banned for residential use as part of a total phase-out of its use in the US. What was it you said? It was just a herbicide, was it? Yeah. So you'd go down to your minor ten or your Bunnings and you'd get your big sack of DDT and spread it around to kill the weeds? Yeah, no, no, not... Um, I think it was... No, it was an insecticide, I think. Oh. Um uh, but the the trouble was that uh, the bad news travelled greatly and widely, so mm. that it had terrible effects over the entire food chain. And mm. Silent Spring was a book. Oh, geez, the name escapes me. But the very fact that this woman woke and she said, "Where are all the birds?" Dead. Jeez, imagine that realization from Ooh. the DDT. So it sort of travelled up the food chain. Yeah. So to the apex. Um, mm. Anyway, that was it. And uh, from little things, big things grow. Mm. You are listening to 3RRR. Uh, we're following in the footsteps of the scientists. Yes. We're getting our academia on. Yes. <laughs> Can to give it a go? But <laughs> the good thing is we're going to um, fill up your bellies in the middle of it all, mm. which, um, so, you know, as we said, it's like a bit like going to uni. We've got our theoreticals. There'll be a prac in the middle. And then the afternoon classes. There's <laughs> <laughs> another theoretical here on 3RRR. Uh, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and it is my delight to uh, to introduce the first of our academics. Uh, it's sort of like a bit of an academic sandwich in the way that we've got two bits of bread with a bit of uh, just uh, a bit of cooking in the middle for today's show, and we are delighted to introduce and welcome, first of all, to Australia, David Santo. A very, very good afternoon to you. 
Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Now, you have just come off the plane. It's... Um it's a bit of a shock how long that flight goes for, isn't it? Well, at least I actually stopped briefly in Vietnam on the way here, so I uh, have had a bit of a, a breather in terms of time zone differences. But, yes, the first flight was <laughs> like, longer than I want to do again. I, I'm in this cylindrical prison, yeah. and I, I need to get out. Have you been to Vietnam before? I had not been to Vietnam, no. I was there for just a, a quick visit with, some, uh, with a family friend and my parents, and it was a perfectly lovely and amazing time. It's a, a marvelous place. The people are extraordinary, and the food is magnificent, isn't it? Yes. It really, really is. But so um, now, tell us um, what brings you uh, to our fair shores. Well, I'm here in Australia this uh, for the next uh, few weeks, actually, but uh, it's a concluding with the wonderful uh, Symposium of Australian Gastronomy, mm. which uh, Kelly Donati was generous enough to invite me to come do a series of different things at. Fantastic. And this is probably a great time to say that she's actually here with her <gasps> uh, incredible uh, husky dog, Bella, who is just checking out everything. This dog is almost human, isn't it? And first of all, hello, Kelly. Hi. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Thanks, you, you, hi. We don't want to talk about you. Your dog's amazing. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes. How are you, Cam? I'm good. Were you um, uh, at the airport with like a, a, a little sign for David? Or? I was, actually, I was at the airport with a little sign for Kelly because she was a teeny <laughs> bit late showing up. But oh, I was, was she? There. I forgot. I was there. You <laughs> forgot? Here's David. Where's David? Where's Kelly? That's um, that's a nine out of ten on the whoop scale there, yeah. Kelly. <laughs> But um, um, you, uh, David is here for the Symposium of Gastronomy, now in its 21st year. It started in 1984, so that's uh, 33 years. Wow, the age of Jesus. Yeah, okay. that's right. 21, why don't they get that's 21 right. from? That's right, a very okay. significant age. Yeah, yeah. And it's also the 21st, also a very significant age, a coming of age. Yes. Now, mm. how does the 21st do relate Because to it's th- every 18 months. Oh, good. Okay. So the 21 was a, was a, a decent thing. Now, uh, David, you're here to uh, to talk about the theme for this symposium is utopia. Is that correct? Utopian appetites. Utopian appetites. Because it's the, what, the 500, there's some more math, the 500th right. anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia, which was itself uh, an interesting and complicated proposal about the d- world. So I was having a flick and through and I saw Thomas More and I was wondering why he was what there. What the hell is he doing on Well, the because website? he's had some yin and yang of being doing good things and bad things in history. This was one of his good ones, was it? Well, this was one of his complexifying ones, perhaps, I think, because utopia is such an interesting subject, both because utopia is both no place and a good place. Yes. And so it suggests also that bad places like dystopias and dystopias. food places like sitopias. Oh, say that um, again. What's sit- it? Food? Sitopia. Oh, nice. Word for so, the day. Matt's just started writing. <laughs> yes. sit, sit with an SIT. This is, no, yes. this is uh, Carolyn Steele's concept of uh, an ideal uh, food environment, which is uh, basically an urban place with some agricultural places not too far from it. So yes. her proposition is about making making good places with food by having food close to the city. But all of these things are part of, you know, a bigger system in terms of good and bad. And the whole even the whole notion of good and bad is already yeah, an artificial s- division a sub- a of reality. A subjective assessment, isn't it? Well, it's subjective and it's also imposing a kind of binary system on our dualistic system on, on foodways, whereas, hold you know, it, everything it, is... 
called it blended. Hold it. Can we just let's just go when you say binary system? What does that mean? Well, like like ones and zeros, or yeah, like got that. or like black and white, or good oh, and bad. Black and white. Okay, so yeah. absolutist we could sort of say is binary system. Yeah, or two ends of a of a pole, two ends of a spectrum, rather than acknowledging that there's a lot of stuff along the spectrum in between the gray yeah. area, as we get to call it so lovingly. Yeah, that that gray area that we well, that's sort of the, the reality of the way we all sort of inhabit, isn't it? Well, yeah, and the and the the black and white or the one and the zero or the this and the that are very much a kind of um, let's call it scientization or framing of of our very fluid realities. And it's about putting control systems on what life and reality is in order to understand it better. But those frameworks, those controls of say good and bad, black and white are also problematic because they divide things artificially into two rather than into the the infinite number of possibilities that life really presents. Mm, it sounds a little bit like the political system and the ramifications we're seeing with that. We're moving away from kind two, aren't we? Of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look what happens when you get to twos. <sighs> or number twos. Um, 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 just a, a little bit of background um, that uh, – how did you get involved in 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 what you're doing now? What was what, how did this all begin? Oh, like everything, it was a fluid continuum. No, I um, <laughs> so I uh, started studying about food about eleven years ago, and yes. this was a continuum of my love of food, which had existed from an early age. As many of us are fond of food, so was I. But when I found myself with uh, at a crossroads, let's call it, I, I was breaking up with my long term partner, and I thought, "What the hell am I going to do now?" Yeah, well, um, I took it? myself off to Italy. Uh, I had been living <laughs> in Los Angeles at that point. I took myself to Italy to go study about food, and that began the sort of third career of my life, which was awesome. now being a food academic. Awesome way to deal with a breakup. I've got to kind say, of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so no. So, so what happened when? What happened when when you were there? Did you? Well, I started having eureka moments, or it was it was more a sort of transformational evolution, right? So, I was studying at this amazing university called the University of Gastronomic Sciences. Yeah. And where is that? It's in um, there. At one point, there were two campuses. Now, there's just one, which is south of Torino in the northeast, uh, the northwest, sorry, of Italy in Piemonte. Yes. Um, so the university was this place conceived to teach about food in a kind of multidisciplinary, multisensorial way. So our students actually um, not only learn about stuff in the class, but they taste, they travel into the field, they meet with producers, they socialize an enormous amount. And these are all ways of diff- different ways of learning about food. Mm. And that's really the distinctive feature about the university is it, it is not just a kind of cognitive learning process, but a very embodied, very material, very sensorial learning process. And that transforms Mm. people remarkably. And this is what we keep seeing with our students. And this is what I became very interested in is how a kind of multi, call it multi-channel or multi-modal way of dealing with food in an academic context can produce completely transformative experiences for the student. Because it's not just intellectual learning. It's whole body learning. Yes. And that's what food already is. Well, especially when you think about – I think about – when I think about food in Italy, I don't know. You, Kelly, you might be able to help me with this. But I think of it's, it's in, insanely prescriptive. Um, and, the, and the one thing about, you know, the Italians is that they are so quick to bring up the index finger and shake it to you and go, what are you doing that for? No. Non si fa. Yeah. It is not done. Well, yeah. and, this is, and this is very true um, in some contexts where things like identity, language, place, and food, and political system, and all sorts of other things mm. are deeply entangled. And it's what makes Italian cuisine so very strong and identifiable. And yet, it also doesn't necessarily present a lot of 
opportunities, let's say, for innovation by no. the individual, right? No, yeah, no, non no. Sifa. No sifa, it, you yeah. don't do it that way. You do it like way, the way yeah. it's always you been done. You do it like done. my nonna did. Yeah. yeah. And that reinforces a kind of collective identity, which is super important for people in general. That rocks. But it also sometimes limits what can be done in terms of innovating and becoming new. And so a lot of young people who are innovating um, in all sorts of interesting areas with, with beer and with pasta and with bread making and with all sorts of miso making standard stuff, miso making. Yeah, like, yeah. Italian young people who want to be part of this innovative new world of gastronomy often find it difficult to find their commercial place within that society because it's they're presenting products and, and ideas that aren't conventionally understood within within the borders of Italy. Well, look at what's happened to, like, say, Massimo Bocciura, who is, you know, regarded as, you know, numero uno of... Uh, of the goodness, sorry, stop doing Italian. I'm not Italian. Remember, you're not Italian. Um, uh, but he he came up against this whole brick wall, you yeah, know, yeah. about you know what are you doing to our cuisine? What are you doing to this culture? And even though he's this great innovative thinker, uh, moving away from the black and the white. He has certainly met a lot of opposition. It took him a long time to find the, the yeah the public recognition of his talent and his skill and yeah. his, his creativity. I think part of it came in because uh, because he was engaging with art, and at least that was a very yeah. understandable thing. Lou and Reed he made, he made the relationship between <laughs> Sorry. art yeah. and food, uh, and there were lots of relationships to be made. But he he actually made that very successful. He made it more understandable and approachable for I think um, more of Italy. Mm, yeah. Um, so. This is interesting that you are now in a town and, um, that is very much in flux about what we do. Like, you know, last week we had a Scott talking about his Vietnamese restaurant, you know, obviously in collaboration with a Vietnamese chef. But we would have to say that in a way, even though we sometimes refer to ourselves, Melbourne being the 21st region of Italy, in the fact that we have the Passat, what I call the Passata Triangle, which is very traditional. We embrace so many things and, and cultures. Yeah, well, and, you know, I come from Canada, which is in same, many same. Ways very similar. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? And certainly Montreal, which is an incredibly international, multi multicultural city. And T.O. And Toronto and mm. Vancouver and many of the big cities in Canada and even some of the smaller cities uh, more recently have become extremely multi multi-diverse in many different ways, not yes. just nationality. So this is this is part of the reality of many countries. And figuring out how to find a path through that and embrace that kind of becomingness, if you want to use a kind of fancy academic word, becoming, of food yes. culture. Like it's a, it's a state of becoming. It is constantly in a process of change. Flux evolving. Flux, flux evolving, evolution. emergence, whatever you want to call it. Okay. It's just the reality that we live. And so instead of trying to name it as historically connected, mm. we we embrace what it is, which is constantly changing. Okay. Kelly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Are you? Uh, yes. Um, so, so David's going to be here for part of uh, the uh, consortium, that, that's, uh, symposium, sorry, consortium, symposium that's uh, happening. Um, what, uh, what specific thing is David going to be here for for that? Well, there's a couple of different activities. You got him, going you're going to get him going? Get yes, he's going to be working. Uh, yes. We do have him as uh, running uh, a series of workshops at William Anglis, yes. uh, one of which is open to the public, which is uh, on the last week of November, uh, 25th, I think. 25th, I think. Um, Coming up in the not-too-distant future. In the, the very um, rapidly approaching future. Yes. 
Uh, and then he'll be doing a performance piece at um, at the University of Melbourne as part of the symposium, as well as having a conversation about scriptedness and innovation, which I suppose uh, speaks to some of the themes that you were uh, just talking about now, um, at William Anglis uh, with Josh Evans from the – formerly of the Nordic Food Lab. So they'll be having a kind Whoa. of a, uh, a conversation together. Yeah. Do so you want to talk about your performance? Well, yeah, the, tell us about all, it. All of it kind of fits together in the, into this, what we were just talking about, the sort of the becomingness of stuff. Um, I use performance or ecology or spatial design all kind of interchangeably because these are, this is sort of what happens in the world. There's a bunch of things to come together. Some of them are more symbolic and, and meaning oriented. Some of them are more physical and embodied. Yeah. And then they're all connected by people doing things and interacting and the transformations that happen when people come together. And so performance is, is the way that I put it all together. But I'm going to do a performance about some of the travels that I've been doing for the university. I've been on this this thing called the Eco Gastronomy Project for about 14 months, visiting, in fact, 14 countries in those 14 months, and organizing different events around around food and about local food projects. So I've got tons of stories to tell. But instead of telling them, I'm going to get other people to tell me their stories mm. and see what kind of performance they can put on. So instead of the audience being spectators, they're going to be actors, participants. Yeah, as we always all already are. Um, so then. And the talk that I'll be doing with Josh is a bit more sort of conventional conference talk yeah, yeah. where we talk yeah. about how everything that we do in the world is both scripted and improvised at the same time. We've got social mores that tell us how to behave in public, but then we always improvise around them. Mm. We have an understanding of how gravity and intersections and buildings all work, but then we also do things that are sometimes unpredictable or unexpected in, within them. So this tension between scriptedness and improvisation is kind of everything that food is as well. Think about cuisine and then also making a dish. Mm. Um, there are two different things that are going on there. So this is all an exploration of how those two things come together in food. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we look forward to that. Um, Kelly, very, very quickly, how do we get information on this upcoming symposium? www.gastronomers.net. Okay, or uh, Australian Food Symposium? Yeah, if you Google if you Australian Google uh, Symposium of Australian Gastronomy. But well, the, the website is gastronomers.net. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to be moving on to uh, the meat part of the sandwich. We thank you very, very much. We welcome you to Australia. I hope you... Uh, you do enjoy that. And uh, just to give you a little preview before Matt pulls down those faders, I want to unleash what I think is one of um, Australia. Oh, look at Bella's got all interested. The Husky's <laughs> seen this. Have you eaten a lot of mangoes? I have eaten a few mangoes, but that's a very beautiful mango. This is, uh, this is, yes, the Kensington Pride, and I think it is one of Australia's greatest gifts to the world. And uh, we might belly <laughs> And we've got a husky that's just jumped on my lap to go, that looks interesting. Hi. Um, this is an odd thing. Um, but we're going to have a little taste of this uh, in a bit. I'd love you to try it. Welcome to Australia. Hope you enjoy it, and uh, good luck with the symposium. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. You're listening to three triple RFM. And my time starts. Your time is starting now, now. Nikki. This is great. Nikki's uh, got the uh, the timer on. I am in Richmond at Union Dining, and we've got Nikki Rima here. A very very good afternoon to you. Oh, good afternoon to you too, sir. Nice for you to allow me into uh, your kitchen. Oh, my pleasure to have you here. It's good fun. Um, you've had a, a good lunch service. There seems to be a lot yeah. of contented bods around. Nice vibe. Very nice vibe. Everyone's getting into the Christmas mood already. Already? Oh, my God, it's scary, oh, isn't it? killing me. 
but anyway. It is. And and we were doing a, a thing, I, I asked if I could maybe come and see you yep. to do um, some sort of, you know, Christmas fair. Yep. And I thought we might talk about, or you actually suggested about, the protein that most freaks out people. Let's face it, it does, doesn't it? It does scare people, but it shouldn't. Yeah. It actually can be the easiest thing to cook on Christmas Day. And like, we're talking really about easy. the fush. The delicious fish. Yeah. Oh, I can't do an accent as good as you can. Yeah, but, but, I, but I'll come close. But what have we got here? We've got. So a, this is a lovely fillet of gold band snapper. So yes. this is a fish. The actual fish that this came from was probably about a four kilo fish, maybe three and a half, four kilo fish. Yep. So the fillet itself is around the two kilo mark, maybe a bit under. Mm. But ask your fishmonger, go to a market, get a really good one, ask them to fillet it for you. May I have just one side of snapper? If you're feeding, this is a great little starter, I think, for like four people because you'll get one, two, three, four, four pieces. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. And or it's if you've got really hungry, like this is something I might eat with just my sister, you know, like because we love our fish. Yeah, that's so, Go down really, really well. So we've got the um, we've got the fillet, and yep. you've put some slashes in the side. Just in the skin, just because as it cooks, I don't want the skin to sort of contract up. It is a protein; yes. it will go. Yep. So if I give it a little bit of a slash in the skin, it'll just relax as it cooks when it finishes its cooking, I should say, and it, and it will sort of fall into a nice shape still. And it's not going to tie itself up in knots while you cook no. it. Exactly, yeah, that's, that's the idea. Exactly. Okay. Then I got my harissa. So Ooh. the one thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that fish is so great, especially a whole fillet it like this in that it's a perfect thing to marinate and then just pop it in the oven you know we're we're all a bit time poor but we all want to have really flavors and things so i really love to get a whole side of fish and i leave a little bit of the bone in there because it's going to be easy to break out when you're cooking when you're eating i should say sorry and is that going to add some flavor it will it will give beautiful flavor and i've got lots of friends who actually like to sort of you know suck on those little bits of the fish bone there and get all those yummy bits off there and what's harissa for those that might have been born under a rock i know I know. Um, it's a basically it's a lovely Moroccan chili paste. Yes. A little bit soft. You can great, buy great tube of it from the supermarket or really good supermarket nowadays has them. Yeah, they're, they're um, available. Yeah, yeah, and it has like cumin and a bit of coriander in there, lots of chili and capsicum in there as well. Mm. Usually a little bit of oil in there as well. So this is nice and smooth. You squeeze it out, add a little bit more olive oil yes. in a bowl to your harissa, thins oh, it out a little okay. bit more. So and this is to add an aromatic heat to the to the dish, yeah? To the fish, yeah. It's yep. not going to be so hot it's unpalatable, but it's going to be mm. nice and warm, I think. Oh, yeah. And the idea I want to have with that is a really spicy, nice piece of fish and a fresh, crispy salad to go with it. So you think about it. You've got your fillet. You've bought your harissa. It's all yes. in the fridge. You come home. Yeah. Grab out the fish, rub it in the harissa. It can marinate for half a day, a whole day, or you can just put it on straight away. It doesn't matter. It's how strong. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, okay. me. it's, yeah, well, it's it, about it's, how strong a flavour you want. It's about don't freak out. Exactly. It's, it's fine. Just right. just relax. So you've got a bit of silicon paper there. Or baking paper baking at home. Paper, just yeah. something that the fish doesn't stick to any pan that you put it in. Yes. And try to put it in like a baking tray, like you're popping something into roasted chicken on, that kind of tray. Yep. A little bit of extra virgin olive oil because you just can never top. have too much of that. There's lots of. I'm just looking over at the pass here at Union Dining. Lots of oil. Uh, what's what's the actual street number here? Two seventy. Two seventy Swan Street in yeah. Richmond. In Richmond. So if you're here and you look at the pass um, here, you'll see olive oil ready to go. Um, we always have two. We have a sort of blend of olive oil and vegetable oil yes. and we have an extra virgin olive oh, oil. Oh, okay, the red so top. the red top is the good yeah. stuff. Yes. <laughs> and it go, it's a finishing oil. We don't use a lot of it. This blend oil, which is just 
olive oil and vegetable oil is what we do all our cooking in here. Mm. So I like the flavour of olive oil. I'll always use it in my cooking, but just for finishing things, I think extra virgin, not too much in the actual oven. It is expensive, lower burning point, all that kind of thing. Yeah, a lower burning point, lower smoke point and yes. all that. Smoke and, point, thank you, Chef. And this is the one, and also the thing, how good are these squeezy bottles? I know. I, mean, I know. If the, if the world all of a sudden said they're bad for us, we'd be in trouble in a kitchen. Oh, no, I just, my, my shoulders just hunched forward. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're, what a wonderful thing to have. And you can get them um, at cooking shops now. Yes, and Victoria Street. Them. Victoria Street's got a great shops down there for buying all these kind of things for the home. Oh, where about some Victoria Street? There's one just near the corner of a Victorian church. It's called yes. Chefland. Oh, but I know. That, that's a, a good shop. It's yes. got so many good things in there. And, and you can probably get that at Min Fat as well. Do you yes. have a shop yep. there? Yeah, I often go up there as well. Okay, Min Fat, for those that don't know, is uh, Vietnamese headquarters, but not just Vietnamese headquarters. It's pretty it's much delicious. everything from Asia you yep. can possibly think of. All right, so the um, the Fish snap the has oven. just gone in the oven. Yeah. Temperature? And I think uh, I've made my oven nice and hot, like 200 degrees. Yes. Nice and hot. We want to cook it quickly. We don't want it in the oven for like 20 minutes. No. Preferably, we'd like it in there for 10 to 15. Okay. So it's reasonably quick. That's another great thing about this dish yes. is that a snapper fillet's not really thick. Like you, the fish itself is probably only about maybe two and a half centimetres thick, if that. Mm. So it's going to cook reasonably quickly if it's a nice hot oven. A little yeah. bit of caramelisation might occur. Not too much is going to occur, but enough that it's going to give it another flavour profile as well. So you okay. have that soft flesh underneath and you might get a little of the harissa skin and the outside of it going a little bit darker in colour. But oh it's going to be God. nice and tender. My, my mouth is warm. Just think of it. Now, tell me um, one thing. When you bring out a fish protein, we, we're told with um, a lot of proteins that we should let them rest. Is that the same? It is. I would not say so much with seafood. A little bit of resting time doesn't hurt, yeah. but you don't need to rest it for a long time because in actual fact with seafood, the protein's a little bit different. It will actually continue to cook and almost overcook. Oh. So we don't like to cook our fish for too long. Yes. But having said that, there are some fish that like to be cooked a long time. Like Such as? Um, something like your thicker cut fish like some of the mackerels mm, no. Ma- no mackerel I'd still do in a pan yeah. and, and reasonably quick sometimes if you want a comfy tuna it actually doesn't mind like that more belly cut not the cut that you're going to use for a sashimi mm. more what we call a cooking grade style tuna it doesn't mind to be cooked a little bit longer yes. slowly not on a high heat mm. um, things like those really deep sea fish don't mind a little bit more of a longer cook okay. yeah, yeah. yeah got it okay and uh, now we're going to do a salad. Yes. So it is the perfect time for salad. And the humble cabbage can be dressed up to make a beautiful salad. So I love to use either a white cabbage, a savoy cabbage, even a wombok. Is that so a, this is that's a drumhead cabbage. Yep, just just a standard yeah. drumhead cabbage. This one. So yeah. I've just already sliced it up nice and fine. So yeah. just your favourite knife. Reason, Slice it as it fine as you can do it. Again, don't freak out. That's right. Yeah, yeah. If you want to buy yourself a really good little mandolin slicer, again from Minfat or Chefland, you know you've got those great Asian style uh, slicer, sure and do. you can cut your chunk of cabbage and just run it across that. That's another, yes. that's how I do it at home. And watch out for the fingers. Watch your fingers, yes. I remember a bass player once uh, that <laughs> was working for me as a kitchen hand, there was this scream from the corner of the kitchen. <laughs> that's my career. It was pretty much, it was his left hand, he got all the thing ready, oh, no. does all the notes, he wasn't oh. very happy. but Those notes were probably a little bit dull. Yeah, that well, that yeah. Friday night the gig was a bit dull. But that's the way we have to be in the kitchen, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? So just keep working, I'm sorry. Yeah. So some shaved fennel as yes. well, just a little bit of lightness and it is fennel time. Yes. Beautiful beautiful red onion again don't be too fussy about how fine you cut it just how i like a little bit of crunch Mm. and i think the onion gives that as well i've done 
some pea shoots here, and I've oh, just yum, trimmed them. Nice. Pea shoots are beautiful, crisp yes. and fresh. We're going to get some coriander. Okay, now don't chop all that. Just sort of pick the leaves. Yep. Just sort of, you want a nice bit of flesh in the, that salad, so that's going to add to that. Yeah, now, coriander doesn't chop well, does it? I find that as soon as you, you need to use it straight away. It goes all pasty and yeah. happy. And do, yes. yes. Yeah. Some gorgeous flat leaf parsley. Yes. Now I always roll it up oh, and well, try, and, try and cut it close as I can. Yeah. Hear that noise? Docket's coming in. We've got oh, an order good. in. I'll order in, order in, chef. <laughs> Might be a dessert, I think. Oh, good, good. Okay. That time of the dessert day. Dessert section. Here we go. Uh, no, not of head. Dessert. <laughs> Yep, oh good. <laughs> so we've got some great parsley, lots of parsley. Yes. You never have too much parsley. Oh, that's looking good. And now we're going to grab some mint. Yeah, I'm going to even take a picture of that while you do that. Roughly there we go. sort of chop this as well. Again, I kind of call this a rough chiffonade. <laughs> rough chiffonade. Rough chiffonade. Yeah, nice. The finest cut versus the biggest, worst cut, you know. I like a bit of rough chiffonade. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, so just to go over that again, we've got uh, drumhead um, cabbage. Can use savoy. Can use wom- wombok. Yep. Um, snow pea shoots for yes. a little bit of ooh, highfalutinness, high which is nice. <laughs> yes. um, your um, more sort of pedestrian fennel things. fennel's in there as well. Fennel's in there as well. Onion for the lift. Yes. Mint for just to all round... Yum! Yeah, because totally. mint, mint is amazing. I mean, that's one that's of the, right. the great discoveries that we've had as Melburnians. Thanks to people like Greg Maloof, really. Oh, totally, Don't totally, totally yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. mint is actually not just something that you have in it's a not horrible on a strawberry dr- with whipped cream. It's not like that. Or a horrible, dr- you know, the thing. The only time we'd ever see mint was next to the roast lamb. That's right. Remember mint jelly? It wasn't even real mint, I don't no, think. No, it was like this... Food-coloured green mint, liquid. Nuclear green. It was like, no, mint, if there's one thing, and most of you guys know this out there, don't you, folks? Um, mint in salads is awesome. Now, Nikki's got some lemons. Lemons. Going to put that in. Yep, yep, just squeeze the lemons in. Yes. A little bit of seed there. Look, to be honest, I'm not fussed. Yeah, that's right. A little bit of more, probably two lemons. Yes. I'm kind of making enough here for four people. That's the idea. I, you know, no one, I never cook for two. Yes. Even if I am cooking for two, I'm actually cooking for four in my head. Does that yeah, make sense? Well, yeah, absolutely. Probably a little, probably a little well, bit more. It's, it's always good to, look, if you, if you haven't got enough for everybody to eat, you've got some left. You will have some left over. I know. Extra virgin olive oil. Yes. And the, the secret. Did you use the red one? <laughs> I used the red top. Use the red one. Feta. Feta. This is sheep milk feta. Wow. Okay, a little bit of feta. It goes so well Yum. with the mint and the coriander and the cabbage. And it gives a little bit of creaminess to your salad. So all of those kind of things you can have in the fridge. You know, like we pretty much always oh. have got you know, a bit of cabbage and onion laying around. Grab a fennel, have some herbs and a beautiful creamy feta. See how I'm, as I mix it through, I really like to just sort of let that feta coat everything. Yes, and it does, it sort of gets, um, it, it almost hides in there a bit, yep. doesn't it? Yeah, it's, totally. It's, it's not really obvious. No. And I think also what it, it just has that extra bit of salt in there without it being too salty. Yep. So I don't really season the salad. Mm. I sort of just put enough. I'm well, gonna, you I'm don't. Chef you won't need to put salt in there because that feta will, will give that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, that is great feta. Yeah. Who makes that? What is that? That's from Meredith Dairy. It's quite salty. Mm, mm, mm. It's a, it's a big salt, so you it wouldn't you, a little bit will go a long That's way. Right. Hence no Whoa. salt in there. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, but when then you sort of get that background of oh, there's the mint, mm. there's the freshness of the coriander in there as well, and things like the parsley and the peel have just add to texture. And you got lots of crunch, and yeah. it's just 
Oh, this is somewhere personified, isn't it? And I reckon. The great thing about these sort of slaws is they're not hard. Once you get your knife moving it's, and... That's right. Once you're comfortable, get your favourite knife. Have that knife sharp. Mm. Try to keep it sharp. And also, you know, if you don't like the... You're not into the joys of slicing things, a really good little mandolin is going to be a godsend in your kitchen. Yes. Because the onion, the cabbage and the fennel could all be sliced on that. Yes. So all you've got to do is chop up some herbs. Yum. No and one's scared of that. That sounds great. Yeah. Oh, Nikki, that just looks great. And this I'm going to have a bit of fish now because we're about Summer personified. Oh, let's go and we'll take it out. Yep. We're going into the oven. Pretty hot in here. Oh, yeah. That's close. So see how that's sizzling away, but I think we could cook it for about another two to three minutes. We yeah, done. A bit more okay. Oh, it smells divine. And, you know, one of the things you really should have in the kitchen is maybe a tube of harissa because a little bit got, goes a long oh, way. There's, I think at my fridge at home, I've got three at the moment because mm. I don't know how to use a small amount of it. I love it too much. So it's always like, just squeeze out a bit of that. I even put it in pasta, like tomato pasta sauces sometimes. Yeah. If I want that extra hit of spice to the pasta sauce, especially even if you're doing like an arrabbiata and you've got fresh chilli in there. The harissa is always that, for me, it's a bit of a secret ingredient for friends because they're like, what else is in there? I'm like, no, no, no. More wine? Yeah, that's it. Oh, you're evil. That's that's kind of good. Yeah, it's a handy thing to have, I And also one of the greatest things, um, I remember Kath Claringbold. Yeah, uh, great chef I worked for. Great chef, the Tunisian carrot salad. Everybody still talks to me I about know, that. Oh, it's so amazing. We've um, done it here a couple of times, yes. just as a bit of a surprise special, and yes. it always gets talked about, always. And yes. that's all about harissa. It is all about, and if you guys are nice, we might even tell you about the recipe sometime. Um, Nikki, there's, um, oh, there's no more orders, which is kind of good. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Snapper rocks, coleslaws. They're simple, they're great. And everybody should know how to do them. And the and bell signifies we got, that we are done. And we got, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Dessert up. End of that round. Okay. Nikki, thank you very much again. Pleasure, Cam. Thank you. Well, welcome back. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. And I think maybe what we might do is mm. we might have a chat to a second academic. And um, this is kind of interesting. A, a gentleman who's completed his chef training in New Zealand prior to completing a degree in food science and nutrition, PhD in flavour science. This one will get you interested in beer. Ooh, there you go. Oh, hello. Matt's, Matt's hello. And uh, about five years post-doctoral uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, I wanted to speak to him earlier this year, but I think he'd gone overseas and we couldn't find him. The good news is, uh, not quite from Deakin University, he's kicking up his feet and just taking a little bit of a break. We welcome to the microphones Professor Russell Keast. A very, very good afternoon to you. Hi, Cameron. How are you? Oh, look, I'm very, very well. I'm, I'm just trying to remember. I think we first met, it was uh, uh, a luncheon at Movida, I think, where Frank Camorra just discovered uh, plankton and was uh, working out great ways to serve this, uh, this incredible product. It was very nice, wasn't it? A very nice luncheon. It was good, and there was, um, boy, there was a lot of green. There was a lot of uh, marine chlorophyll around the place, wasn't there? Lovely stuff, lovely stuff. No, it was. And, you know, can't they do remarkable things with it? Doesn't, you know, uh, Frank and the Movita team do do an excellent job? Oh, yeah, do they ever? I mean, um, redefine the way that we sort of see Spanish food in this town, and also had the ability, I think, the great thing about Frank is. Um, making uh, just tapas and rations, but bringing them up or into fine food. Oh gosh, yes, yeah, 
Remarkable. We're nodding our heads, so we're in we're in agreement. This is a good way to start this interview. <laughs> it is. Hey, just tell us a little bit about how did you get involved in from from bridging over from the kitchen and first of all how you got involved in that and how you went into academia. Look, always uh, had an had an interest in food and um, thought the best way was to you know to to practice at it and and that was obviously with the with the cook's training and and um a cook's eye that, that's right and, mm. and you know after, after that things get a little bit um you know is there more can can there be more and and um after after a few years decided to um think about uh the science side of things so went back to university at at um, at that stage, and and really just you, you, all the study options have been around the food um, area. So so the original um, qualifications, uh, the original you know cooks qualifications, yes. and then working in kitchens um, has has really been beneficial. Um, certainly, uh, you know through my time and, and research and at universities, um, you know something always. You know, it's a great qualification to have, and, and it's good to have a, a, a good understanding of food and food systems. Well, yeah, it's sort of one thing leads to another, I reckon, with um, especially learning about food and doing an apprenticeship. You start to you do food science, and you start to understand. It's like, well, you boil an egg, and how come it goes from clear to you know white? And you, and and that's a great underpinning, I, I suppose. Hey. What was your Absolutely. first? What was the first job that you got, or how how did you do this launching pad from the kitchen to uh, to the uh, the whiteboard? Well, well look, it, it was you know in terms of the the, the kitchen stuff, it, it it got to a point where I had I, I really did want to know more, and just found mm. that I wasn't you know while you were going through day after day, and it, it's a it's a lot of hard work, yes. you know, day after day after day, and and, and really, I wasn't, uh, I suppose, as enthused as I was at the start with the actual uh, application of of doing the the cooking and, and working in kitchens, and decided I still wanted to be in food, but um, you know, the next step would be to to find out about you know what is happening, and and I was actually thinking that. It would be a good thing to be a food writer. Oh yeah, you know, I, I, and, and it's a good gig. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And and pretty much when you when you go through a university, even though it wasn't what I thought of at the time, um, staying in the university environment, pretty much I am a food writer. Um, it's just in an academic sense, not necessarily in a in a public sense. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So a, a, a bit more targeted rather than a, a general approach yes. that a food writer might take. That's right. Yes. And um, and you've been working on um, uh, uh, papers and some interesting things between the link between taste and diet. Yeah. So so I suppose that's where everything went. So uh, um, I had uh, I think as you mentioned in the in the intro that that a. Uh, PhD in, in New Zealand at, at Otago on uh, beer flavour and, and that led me to Philadelphia and and um, I worked a lot more when I was in Philadelphia on the sense of taste so sweet, sour, salty, bitter and umami so those five 
elements. Taste qualities, yeah. yeah. Mm. And and from there, coming back to Australia, the the landing at Deakin in a very strong nutrition school, it was an obvious link to be able to mix taste with nutrition. And it was, you know, going way back in time to Aristotle. You know, he was the first person to certainly put down in writing this link between, and the intimate link between taste and nutrition and the fact that the sense of taste informs us whether we should be swallowing or not, whatever the potential food is. So so um, the link with taste and nutrition, the good thing about it is it's incredibly understudied. The, the, mm. the other thing is... Well, that good it, thing it, for you. Very good thing for me, yes. and, and it's incredibly interesting. What you know, some of the stuff we do is, is just um, you know really, really um, uh, interesting in terms of what we're finding out. And one of the things that you've been doing is very much hands-on uh, practical experiments, where uh, the call has gone out for people to come to be tested. Would that be a right way to put it? That's, Assessed. That's exactly. It's yes, an assessment. Yes. Yeah. So, so we do. We we um, uh, we have a lot of different trials going on. So, so these can be anything ranging from dietary interventions, where we may be putting people on low fat or high carbohydrate diets, and um, assessing them uh, at different time points over the over the dietary intervention and looking at you know, what's happening to their sense of taste and also other things like, you know, in some cases we may take um, blood samples or saliva samples and just looking at, at these subtle changes that happen with diet and mm. and, um, and if we can modify the diet, seeing what's happening. Other things we also do is um, more along the lines of commercial testing, so testing, you know, how much you like a food product and and um, um, and those things. And then, again, we're always looking for people to, to be able to join our database. And if any of your listeners want to want to be paid to come and taste stuff, then, um, you know, we've got a, uh, a database that, that we would welcome more people on. And you've got budget too, which is... Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. Which is kind of good. So, you know, we... Uh, uh, we look for, you know, summaries of things in our lives to just sort of inform that. And I wonder if maybe you might tell us what are sort of the, the main things that have been discovered through your work. Sure. Well, well, I suppose one of the one of the things that we started to do around about 2007 was look at um, one of the new sort of tastes that are emerging, um, which is responsive to fat. So, um, while well, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami are the, the five taste qualities, yes. um, one of the one of the things that came out of some work done in a, in a rodent model was that um, they, they were actually responsive to fats. You know, doing doing a, a variety of different measures. So, so one of the things that we were looking at was, uh, you know, was the same. Can the same be said in humans? And, and it makes you know sense simply because if we think about carbohydrate, um, you've got the breakdown product of carbohydrates as sugars, sugars which yeah. respond to sweet. Yes. Um, in terms of pr- 
protein. Proteins break down and they've got the umami character with it. Mm. The other major macronutrient being fat was really thought of as having textural components and it has um, aroma components to it. Yes. But there was no thought of, of taste. Now, we, we know that fat is a often demonized macronutrient. Um, you know, obviously it's highly energy dense. And we, we, if we overconsume too much, you know, you've got to go do a lot of running or a lot of exercise to be able to burn off the extra calories. Mm. In terms of low-fat foods, the development of low-fat foods really have been unsatisfying in terms of the public. They don't seem to, in the, over the long term, mm. be able to stick with um, the low-fat foods. And one of the one of um, our hypotheses going in was that maybe we're missing component of the satisfaction that fat gives us in, in terms of food and and really that's what we're working to one we 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 certainly believe fat is now a taste and i think the evidence is now um overwhelming so we we, we have you know six taste qualities one of them is fat and people respond differently to it if we put people on a low fat diet their sensitivity to fat does increase. And what we're actually seeing is that, um, particularly in terms of the satisfaction and satiety or the fullness aspects that we get from our food, yes. if you're less sensitive to fat, so if you, you, you consume it but orally you don't have the receptors there to identify the fat, those signals aren't being sent through to the brain. Um, also, when the fat, when the when the fat hits the gut, um, again, if those receptors aren't there, giving the signals to the brain that the nutrients arrived, um, the nutrient can be absorbed and it can go into storage. But you're not getting those signals through saying, uh, "Ah, I've I've yes. had I've had my full of." food and fat being a component of it and I feel satisfied so therefore I can stop eating. If those signals aren't being sent then what we're seeing is that, that if you're less sensitive to fat you're liable to overeat and it really comes back to you're not getting the same satisfaction. Gotcha. Um, um, so somebody else's. Yes. Um, Russell, how if people were interested in uh, contributing to your research, uh, how might they might get in touch with you? Yeah, um, the the best is email, and it's a it's a simple email address: c a s s c a s s at deacon edu au. Got it. Well, I've got uh, Matt. Is uh, thumbs up to me. Just you know it. it. He's got it. He's <laughs> nailed it. We'll put that on the triple R website so people can follow up. So the sixth thank element you, has been has been found. We kind of like that. Um, thank yes. you so much for having a chat to us. We'll let Thanks, you Cameron. enjoy the uh, the rest of your afternoon. Thanks very much, Cameron. You have a good afternoon too. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.